You're listening to Ghost Radio, Station 0.5. It's the devil in the dive, and up next is another rad episode of Bad Band Great Song. I got you. Yeah. I got you. I wasn't just saying, like, you're something Hello, everyone. <laughs> yeah, hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. We're going to get right into it today. No fucking around, because this is a, this is a real serious song, and we're going to approach it in real serious fashion, which means we got to get this out of the way. This has to happen before anything else happens. So um, I just need to say goodbye, everybody. You, uh, you know that you know that, that. I mean, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna end here. Don't worry. But I just gotta say, that was my Australian accent. How do you like that? How about that? Your Australian's the best one you got. That was actually pretty good. Right? It wasn't horrible. It wasn't horrible. I told you I listen to, I listen to, a, I watch a lot of Australian YouTubers. Right. Anyway, hello everybody and welcome to the podcast. I will piss you off. This is Bad Band, great song. I am your host, Andrew Patrick Finelli, and with me is your other host of the show, Jeremy Cohen. Jerry! How you doing? I Ben. <laughs> the Ben we're focusing our critique on today. Oh, talk about scary, scary stuff. Oh, man. Jet. This is Jet and their song, Are You Gonna Be My Girl? Are you going to be my girl? I can't sing today. <laughs> I think I didn't sing last episode either. No, last episode was your cover of Crazy Town covering oh, The Bravery right, right, is right. Unconditional, which was actually tremendous. But Are I like- you going to be my girl? I'm just going to do Crazy Town covers of all the songs we do now. That's fine. I kind of liked your like Seinfeld as philosopher- but are you going to be my girl? That was actually, that was a pretty good lead in today. And about that, are you going to be my girl is the starting point and highest point in the rock and roll band Jet and their not very storied career. It's amazing how you just made rock and roll sound like a derogatory term. Yeah, how about that? Isn't that interesting? Are You Gonna Be My Girl is Jet's biggest single and has proven <laughs> if something is big enough, you kind of never have to do anything important ever again. All you got to do after that is well enough. How about that? Now, isn't that something? We're starting really hot today. This, this is like, this is mean. This is kind of mean. I'm sorry. I've already started mean. I'm just being a mean person from jump. But okay. It's all right. It's all right. I think I'm not even going to try to justify it. We're just doing this. Jet doesn't have stands, I think. They have fans. Sort of. People may be mad when we say Jet's a bad band. I'm sure there's going to be somebody out there. But don't worry, because while we look at that, we're not here to actually prove to the, the Jet stands and fans, if, if there are, are any left, that Jet is bad. No, 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 no. That doesn't need to be proved. No. We're here to challenge the skeptics to recognize the greatness of their song, Are You Gonna Be My Girl? Which, by the way, has no question mark in the title. 
The title is a question, but written as a declarative statement. We're going to talk about that. If you've been listening, folks at home, you know I have a thing about clarity of thought. So, we are going to examine Jet and the song Are You Gonna Be My Girl in detail to articulate how and why to make the case that though Jet is a bad man, Are You Gonna Be My Girl is a great song. There's no way to say that without it sounding like a question. It's a and they still question. It is a question, and I just, like, I'm trying to phrase it in my head. And the fact that they think it's a statement just speaks to the... Just, it really speaks to the toxic masculinity behind that whole thing, doesn't it? Let's talk about it. Let's get into it, because we Let's are going to actually get into it. it. Dingley Village, a suburb of Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. Dingley is roughly 28 kilometers or 17.4 miles from the city center of Melbourne or the Central Business District, a.k.a. CBD. Yeah, how about that one? Weed! <laughs> Y'all fuck with weed though You know what CBD is The central business district In Dingley That is kind of tight actually Uh, I hope you Dingley folks have fun with that one The history of the land that would be called Dingley by white people Begins with the indigenous people who were Always there but eventually As is the case with most Innovation sadly the people Who were there first had their land taken by <laughs> white people, white people who brought with them strange, fabricated ideas that have no connection to objective reality. Ideas like leases, mortgages, deeds of ownership. I'm talking about property. Property and jet planes. <laughs> and you know why, you know why, Jerry, you know why an anarchist doesn't drink English tea? Uh, because property is theft. Oh! Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think that's actually against me's joke. I don't know if, if, if they came up with it, but I, that, that, that's a joke that I heard from... Well, anyway, you know, that's a joke I heard a while ago. That's not an original joke. Anyway, about property... A big, a big part of the story of the land of the white people called Dingley. Dingley's history is predicated on gardening canning, as in, you know, what peaches come in? And golf clubs, yes, golf clubs. That's not a bad major export. <laughs> golf clubs? Yeah, Dingley does kind of sound like a golf club brand. Golf clubs is in places to play golf. Oh, but I thought maybe, they... Maybe they make golf. Oh, in the context of canning, I thought they were like, oh, they make cans, you know, that one metal. I... <laughs> I apologize if that was unclear to you, Jerry, and the folks at home. Dingley is pop is 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 known for gardening and canning, as in canning things. But when I said golf clubs, I meant places to play golf. And we're gonna get we're oh we're gonna get into that. Sick. You see, Dingley Village was originally just called Dingley. Again, by the white people who stole it, of course. In 1989, the very precious Marion Harden, whom I'm sure is a wonderful person, but we're gonna have some fun at her expense right now. Marion Harridan helped form and lead a group known as Let's Put the Village Back Into Dingley. Snappy name. Their goal? Well, <laughs> it was to gain official approval to rename Dingley as Dingley Village. And wouldn't you know it, wouldn't you know it, the primary support for Dingley being a true village is as follows. Dingley was and is surrounded by four, count them four, 
golf courses. That's kind of impressive. Yes. Private individual golf courses, clubs where the people of Dingley can play golf. Yes. Dingley is surrounded by four golf courses. This is apparently something to be proud of. This is also apparently something uh, that classifies something as a true village. And actually, guess what it comes to white people villages? Okay, sure, I don't know. I guess a village is a cloistered community, right? People who don't want any outsiders. Ensconced in churches and golf courses. Absolutely fucking vile and disgusting. This is where individuality dies. And yet, this is also where the primal scream and riotous roar of Nick Sester would be born. I don't know if you could have a primal scream growing up in a town like that. There's nothing too pri. <laughs> you lose primal in, when you're surrounded by golf courses. <laughs> and I think we just lost 100% of our listenership in Dingley. Hey, folks, I'm sure... You're good people. You're just surrounded by four golf courses. And that's funny. That's all I'm saying. It's funny. It's funny. It's funny. Anyway. This is a, co- a comedy. <laughs> yeah, this is a comedy show. We're entertainers. Any education gained from this is purely incidental and accidental. But hey, you're welcome. So, yes, in a town that was cliche and cookie cutter as fuck, a rock and roll cliche <clears throat> got born. That's just absolutely amazing and so incredibly unamazing yeah, at the same that? time. Nick Sester and Chris Sester are brothers in life and brothers in rock. Yes, rock and roll brothers from a small white bread conservative Christian suburb. Yes. Be careful, folks. We're going to be tripping all over tropes this whole episode. In fact, here are some more for you. Nick and Chris Sester's lives were mm, uh, informed shall we say, by seminal experiences listening to their (laughs) father's rock records from the 60s and 70s. They were seduced by the casual sexism and implicit homophobia of classic rock-modeled machismo. They loved the swagger and bullshit of bands like the Led Zeppelins, the AC and DCs, and the Rolling Stone rock band. Yeah, I mean, how much how much culture could you really be exposed to if you're in a tiny village surrounded by golf courses? (laughs) There can't be too much. It's like there's 18, 18 holes between you and the outside world, no matter what? which direction, you know? It's like. Let me tell you, there's about 18 holes between me and the outside world, too, when I got the grinder out open, buddy. Let me tell you. No, and also, wait, I want to be something clear about. I don't want to speak for Jerry here. I actually don't know his opinions on them. I just want to say Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stone rock band. No disrespect to any of them. I don't personally enjoy those bands, but I do. I'm not saying any of those bands are bad. Not at all. I don't enjoy them. I know they're not bad. I know they're great. Whatever. No, um, but they're they're definitely like a strange out of. I mean, it's not strange, but it's interesting to think about formulating your own opinion about music in the context of these bands from the 70s and 80s and 60s and whatever without the larger picture right and and, and right. not understanding what was before that and then basing just on that i think that's probably part we'll of what makes there. something seem a little more cosplay and less authentic you know exactly exactly it's the lack of and, and we're going to talk about the, it the lack of the full picture exactly exactly the lack of the full picture and again we're, again those bands are fine but to was jerry <laughs> As Jerry just said, to base your whole thing on them. Oh boy, we're gonna. Oh man, oh man, we're gonna. We'll talk about it soon. 
Another formative moment for them was hearing their uncle play Blackbird, the Beatles song, on guitar, a moment which forever shackled, I say, the Sester brothers to sentimental rock balladry and a a particular kind of Beatles fetish. I don't think they could really escape. This would bite them in the ass hard as the band would eventually look to grow beyond shit-kicking rock and roll and attempt to offer up some more contemplative and mature, mature music. But the problem with trying to write McCartney-esque ballads is <laughs> you end up sounding like Oasis Light, which isn't a good thing. Sorry, lads. Oasis is a... Oa- o- o- Oasis is a bad band. Oasis is a fucking terrible band. And they don't have any great songs. Wonderwall is chuggy. It's a live, laugh, love bullshit. You're not wrong. <sighs> Thank- oh, I love you, Sherry. It could be a Maroon 5 song for all I care. And by the way... You know someone should not be trusted once they tell you, oh, but Maroon 5 used to be a real band. They used to rock. The people who say that are the same people who think Sugar Ray used to be like an actual metal band. There's people who say that? Absolutely, because they used to be on Razor and Tie Records, and they had, and Mark McGrath used to shout. It's... You gotta listen to that record. Listen, you do, but... It will be... Just make sure... You're ready to provide yourself with self-care afterwards, and somebody else who loves you is there, too, to help afterwards. It's a punishing experience. You and- heard a liquor? <laughs> <laughs> Liquor's always there. My friend Jack and uh, Evan will be there for me. Uh, listen, just because Sugar Ray used to use distortion and yell doesn't mean that they're fucking metal. Just le- learn to discern. Learn to discern. How about that, huh? Learn to discern! <laughs> oh! Coining phrases in every episode. Learn to discern, folks. Come on. Well, while classic rock from the UK and a little bit from the US was what sparked the Sester Brothers' love of music, it was an Aussie band named UMI that really cleansed the Sesters' doors of perception. UMI is a Y-O-U-A-M the letter I. Yes, quite truly. It is, it is a strange sort of sentence, sentence fragment. You am I. It's kind of... Get, get, get stoned and think about that one for a little bit, folks. You or am dope. I. Yeah, or, or don't. Or just, just sit there sober and, you know. No, get stoned and think about cooler shit. <laughs> you am... <laughs> Sorry. Like this, folks, UMI is considered one of Australia's preeminent rock bands, and their sophomore album, Hi-Fi Way, is considered a classic Australian rock album. In Nick Sester's own words, Hi-Fi Way was... No, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm kidding. kidding. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Okay. Quote. I'll do it. Hi-Fi Way was the most important album... I went went to the Beatles there. That was incredible. I don't know where you went, buddy, but I am We're never going to do it again. I promise you it's done from this point on. Anyway, Hi-Fi Way. (laughs) Hi-Fi Way was the most important album of my generation. For the record, folks, Nick was born July 6th, 1979, and Chris was born September 16th, 1981. Both brothers, especially Chris are young Gen Xers, born at the tail end of that, of that generation's range. In fact, you'll see sources dispute where the year 1981 falls. Is it the last year of Gen X or the first year of the millennials? Who knows? Who cares? Not me. Well, I guess people born in 1981 probably care. <laughs> 
<laughs> maybe, maybe some of them. At least some of them. Sester would go on to tell the Daily Telegraph, that was the record that made you realize you could be in an Australian band. You didn't have to be a grunge band, and you didn't have to be influenced by American bands. It, it just changed everything. Representation matters. <laughs> Representation matters, You exactly. could be in an Australian band. UMI is a funny band. I'm not sure they're all that, but, you know, their album, Sound as Ever, that, that album rocks. I really like that album a lot. UMI, bizarrely, and kind of wonderfully, from my point of view anyway, synthesizes bands like Helmet, The Replacements, Knapsack, Pavement, and a few others that I can't really place quite yet. I'm sure that's very unfair to UMI and their fans. And really kind of, I'll admit, the Knapsack similarities are coincidental at best because both bands' debuts came out in 93. One in America, one in Australia. So there's, there's no way either is influenced by the other, especially in 93 when bands aren't like sharing demos online, you know? So that's coincidental, but that's my take on UMI, folks. They're worth checking out. You could, you could give them a Spooderfy if you want and toss them some streams or buy their album if you like it. 1995 to 1997. <laughs> Pitching wide there, man. This, this was when Jet was born. The actual date, of course, as so many of these stories have been going, fucking indeterminate. Sources that cite actual interviews and quotes from the people involved reference 1995, 1996, and even 1997 as the year Jet formed. I mean, I've I, at this point, since this has happened like so much with so many bands that we don't have like this defined date, I started to think about what date my fucking band was formed. Oh, no. And I can't think of it. Like, it's totally like a rage. And like, who's to fucking say, like, which band practice was the one? I mean, I guess it was band practice. But, you know, it's like... I think everybody has to have a different indicator. Like, my first show is... Shapes after a Weezer cover band was in 2003. My band formed in some 2003. I can at least say that, you know. Right, but <sighs> you don't have a date. That, I could have. I, I, I could have. I thought more about it. Sure, I hear you. And I guess if you're getting interviewed by fucking NME or whatever, whoever the fuck, then I you should think? do your research. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you should be able to answer the questions <laughs> like you that. Would think, you would think. Yeah. Well, but what is certain is that Jet formed at some point during that time while brothers Nick and Chris attended St. Bede's. St. Bede's, I didn't look this up. I'm sorry, folks. St. Bede's. St. Bede's College in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. This could, that's going to be an There's going to be a few accents that I do, folks, but because of my, who I am, I, I can make those accents. Anytime you hear a paisan, that's definitely like, again, Finelli. Don't, you know, come on. You're an Australian paisan. I'm an Australian. <laughs> there's actually a lot of Italian. There's a lot of, there's a lot of paisans in Australia. But anyway, this is, this is when and where they met their original bassist, Doug Armstrong, and guitarist Cameron Muncy. Doug Armstrong would eventually be replaced, however, by their primary bassist, Mark Wilson. Wilson also played the keys, and in doing so, made up the gap left by another short-term member, keyboardist... Jason Dukas, 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 
Duka was only with the band for about one year, 2001. And I'm sorry. I, again, that is a name I don't know how to say. We're Duke doing really ass. well here. Dukas. Yes, I'm sure that's what it is. And I'm sure he'll be most happy with that one. Jason Dukas. What's do- good? We're doing great work here. So it's with the lineup of Nick Sester on lead vocals and rhythm guitar, Chris Sester on drums, Mark Wilson on bass with some keys work, and Cameron Muncy on the lead guitar that we have Jet as we know it. So it's like a 727, 747, <laughs> we're talking Boeing. I don't have enough plain knowledge to make a good joke back to you, but I appreciate that. The late R- <laughs> that's, that's a gap in my that's a gap in my understanding is plain knowledge. I mean, I just said everything I know about planes <laughs> in that joke. So <laughs> I I love that you're not saving anything. You're just putting it all out on the table. That's yeah. a, that's a you're an artist, man. The the late Edward Charles Nimmerville is a beloved Australian music journalist. His work and contributions to the country's pop rock culture cannot be adequately addressed here. He was posthumously inducted into the Music Victoria Hall of Fame at the Music Victoria Awards in 2014. But before any of this, among many things, he ran the website Howl Space, a website dedicated to covering the Australian pop and rock music scene. In a January 31st, 2005 entry on Jet, Nimmerval sums up Jet's career to date. It's in this summary we can find concrete and credible information regarding how Jet formed. Nimmerval recounts Nick Sester and Cameron Muncy meeting at St. Bede's and how it changed both of their lives. Quote, A mutual dislike of the school's sports culture, hell yeah, cemented their friendship. Muncie eventually joined Sester's band. During their formative years, they operated under several names, including... (sighs) Duosonic, Mojo Filter, (laughs) and High Fidelity. Their repertoire included a mix of UMI covers and, quote, whatever else was going around. Love the specificity! In 2002, they decided on the name Jet in honor of Paul McCartney's Wings song from the 1973 Band uh, on the Run album. Yeah, How about that? yeah, of course they're named after a Paul McCartney song. I get it. Isn't that just so fucking lovely? I get it now. And also in 2002, the band released their debut EP. Dirty Sweet. The Dirty Sweet EP gets its name, of course, from T-Rex's classic hit, Bang a Gong, Get It On. Hey, man, who needs TV when, when you, you got, got T-Rex? Rex. Hell yeah, brother. All the young dudes. Oh, I love all the young dudes. No, wait, that's a, the song. I'm talking about the song. I like the song, Young Dudes. I'm moving on. The Dirty Sweet EP was initially released via Rubber Records, an Australian indie founded in 1989. It's safe to say Jet is the biggest band they ever released a record for, which is cool. Do you know? Cool for the label, sure. But damn, these guys don't have an ounce of originality in them, do they? It's (laughs) all just fucking rips. They just name things after other things. It's at best references, at worst, yeah, they're just really just It seems ruthless. It seems reckless. They're just like, whatever. Mm, Who cares? 
I I like that take. I like that take. That may sound spicy to some, but I'm going to actually say that that was medium. To, that was mild to medium. Is mild more mild than medium? or is me- We don't need to get into this now. As the lore goes, the EP. Yes. yes. Mild is more mild than mild medium. Mild is more mild than medium. So I think that was a mild take, but a good take. It just wasn't that. It wasn't spicy. I think that was very measured and thought out, Jerry. Hey. You know? I've been watching cooking shows. I'm thinking about <laughs> measuring. All about the even flavor, the even but deep flavors. That's what we do on this show. Balance. And as the lore goes, the Dirty Sweet EP was limited to 1,000 copies. It it consisted of an A side. (laughs) This is tremendous. It consisted of an A side and a double A side. Yes, a double A side. Is that just a boob joke? I would. I would like what, uh, <laughs> like what is that joke? I would honestly, I think like it more if it were like somehow a breast joke as opposed to imply that they don't have a B side, but they just have an A side and a double A side. You know, that's what. Uh, so there's no like B side. There's no B side. There's no B sides. It's all the fr- yeah. I, I think get, a simpler way of doing that is just both sides of the A side. You don't need it. It's like why turn it up to eleven? You could just make ten louder. You don't need the double A side. You could just have two A sides. But it goes to 11. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the problem with this band. Is right. They take that so real. Yeah. They're like, oh, but it's two A's. <laughs> we have two A types, though. Well, and because of the two A's, the three A's in total, it featured four tracks. Take it or leave it. Cold Hard Bitch. Wait, um, what three A's? Th- three, well, the, the first side's one A oh, and the second, the second side's, side's two, two A's. A's. There's three oh, A's okay. in total. Oh, I got <laughs> <laughs> Listen, man, I'm not that good at math, but I can plus do one plus two. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no. I... So it <laughs> featured four tracks. <laughs> uh, uh, take it or leave it. Cold Hard Bitch and move on and roll over DJ. Hey. <laughs> well, wow, did you actually, yeah, I mean, you Listen, we had to listen. I mean, oh, oh, God. Anyway, the Dirty Sweet EP would later be re-released by Elektra on May 6th, 2003 as an introduction to the band before their debut full-length. Something like the what the Bravery did, except again, their big song that pushed the album wasn't on the EP. They saved it for the album. Whatever. All tracks from the Dirty Sweet EP were on the full-length album, as we just said. And if that seems redundant to people, if that seems redundant to people, if that seems redundant to people, think of it this way. It was like pre-ordering an album on iTunes and downloading four tracks early, except you paid even more back in our day. Sorry, I had, to, I had my, that was my walk up the hill both ways to get to school moment. Anyway, if you want to hear all about Electra Records, wouldn't you know it? I got a suggestion for you. Cue up season one, episode one, semi-sonic closing time from the podcast, Bad Band. Great song. And you'll hear all about Electro Records. How about that? Yeah, it's also a pretty good episode if you ask me. Y'all should check it out. <laughs> like, like and subscribe. subscribe. <laughs> Come and listen with If us. you're on Apple, leave a review. Five stars, but say something. Be, be verbal. I like to hear you talk or read you write. You know, whatever we're going with here. Leave us voice memos in the comments section. <laughs> <laughs> the Dirty Sweet EP generated considerable buzz and excitement, both domestically in Australia and also abroad. And it had some help, due in some part to an already sort of famous Aussie band that despite claiming to be influenced by a host of other bands couldn't escape the shackles of Beatlemania. Folks, check it out. <laughs> if the Beatles is your favorite band, 
Oh, that's cool, by the way. But if they're your favorite band and you you you, you want to start playing music like the Beatles, don't. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Stop right now. Yeah. You will be maybe somewhat sort of like the Apples in Stereo or Elliot Smith at absolute best. Uh, by the way, that's confusing to anybody. You don't get how Elliot Smith is inspired by the Beatles. It's because he's an original and brilliant songwriter, but you got to pay more attention. He's heavily... But anyway, listen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying you're going to be Apples in Stereo or Elliot Smith. You won't be Apples in Stereo or Elliot Smith. You'll, you'll be sort of like them best, but what you'll most likely actually ending, end up being is a, is a far worse version of Oasis, as we already touched on, and that's really bad, as we already touched on. Or, or you'll, no, I, you're not going to be a worse version of Oasis if you try to be like the Beatles. You'll be a worse version of Jet, or Jet's ballads at the very least, their Beatles moments, which is very, very bad. Or you'll be an even worse version of the band that we're actually alluding to and been alluding to this whole time. The Vines. So yes, The Vines. They are the other famous Aussie band, which is way too indebted to the Beatles for anybody's own good. And another band, which leads me to this. If anything about you or your band is remotely modeled after Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, don't! Yeah, definitely don't do that. At least we agree on this. Yeah, whatever you do, just don't do that. For totally different reasons, but we agree on this. So just stop. Same with Led Zeppelin, by the way, folks. What is wrong with you? Fucking people, just start a band and be yourselves or crib your shit more quietly. Steal more cleverly and weave your influences together into a new patchwork. Take less obviously. And oh, the vines. Oh, soon, folks, soon. Okay, okay. Maybe it'll be a fun episode doing the vines. I mean, if you've not listened to the rest of their music besides their first album, you really need to... Do yourself a favor and keep not listening to it until we get to that episode and you can't avoid it anymore. Anyway, as we've alluded to on this show, the people who run the music industry aren't very creative, but they are savage and hungry. So with the Vines gaining international support on music television like uh, MTV, these record label suits realized they needed some more Aussie rock bands. That was, you know, whatever. We're going to move forward to shove down the world's throats. See, at least the Vines were first or something. Sure. Cue Jet. They were a visual blend of T-Rex's glitter and glam and ACDC's so careless, it's completely contrived casual jeans and t-shirt macho bar band energy. And sonically, they were pretty similar to that. Just also with, you know, Beatles! Jet's EP had sold out back home and blew away local press. And a huge part of their success, which has gone unmentioned till now. Who has gone unmentioned till now? Whomst has gone unmentioned till now? Dave Powell. Tell us about Dave Powell, Andrew. I will. Powell is a musician who was, at the time in 2001 and 2002, also booking for a popular Melbourne venue, the Duke of Windsor. What a name. One night, an unnamed band played, and they caught Powell's ear. This was, of course, the band that would become Jet. Powell was instantly enamored. He took the band under his wing. He began bumping other bands off bills, strategically placing Jet at the right times, on the right nights, opening for the right headliners, and playing for the right crowds. 
kind of pays it to have a booker uh, love your band, doesn't it? And 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 manage your band, but for that matter. Oh, absolutely. That just changes everything. Really does. Powell is the one who set the boys up with their UK tour got, that got them on the cover of an issue of the NME. He is the one who most likely made sure they only printed a thousand copies of their debut EP, something that was sure to sell out. It is Dave Powell who guided the rock band Jet to be signed by the label Electra. He was maybe even all the 1,000 copies that sold. He may have just bought them all himself, <laughs> made sure it sold out. I would fucking have you incredible. <laughs> oh, man. And so the boys in the band entered the legendary Sunset Sound Studios. Sunset Sound Studios history began with Walt Disney, the man and Disney's director of recording. <sighs> oh, thank gosh. Tutti Camurata. Bambi, Mary Poppins, and 101 Dalmatians, just to name a few, all owe their sounds to Studio One at Sunset Sound Studios. But that's not all. Actual music that people actually wanted to listen to, sorry Disney fans, was also recorded there. This includes the likes of Prince's Purple Rain, The Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, The Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, Linda Ronstadt's Don't Cry Now portion, of Guns N' Roses' Chinese Democracy. There were some people out there who actually wanted to hear that one. Janis Joplin's Pearl, and also The Doors' first two albums, The Doors and Strange Days. Elton John, Led Zeppelin, and Van Halen also recorded there. Now, it was Jet's turn, and they, of course, were one of the many bands that the, that the NME crowned the Saviors of Rock. There's got to be a complete list of that somewhere. Oh, All I the hope different. there is. Yeah, right? All the different bands that enemy was like, oh, this is going to save rock now. Yeah, right. Have if you heard we, these guys? Yeah, have you heard this? This is the future of rock. Tuesday, isn't it? <laughs> Jet's debut album, Get Born, was produced by Dave Sardi. Dave Sardi is a powerhouse whose career is, frankly, a little too robust and filled with highlights to adequately address in this show. But, Jerry... I believe you have some insights on Sardi you'd like to share with us, isn't that right? Oh, well... Let's talk about it. Isn't that funny, you ask? Isn't it, though? I maybe know a thing or two about this guy. Oh, how convenient. Honestly, all anyone needs to know about how wild of a career this man has is he did the film score for the movie Premium Rush. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt classic. Yeah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt classic. One of the best films about bike messengers. <laughs> Hands out. No, but for real, he's worked for some of my personal, like, all-time favorite bands. He's done Death Row Above 1979. Right, right. System of a Down, LCD Sound System. A lot of sound. A lot of sound systems. Yeah, a lot of systems, a lot of sounds. A lot of down sound, death downs. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, he's engineered, he's mixed, he's played instruments on records. He worked with Frank Black in the early 90s. That's like That's one crazy. of his earliest credits. Um, and the most recent one I could find was the, he was a producer on the new Modest Mouse album. Wow, it's actually is, a relatively timely fact in there. That's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's done he's done a lot. I mean, that's this is all like through the years. I could fill in a lot more, but yeah, wild, varied, pretty cool career. And most importantly, Premium Rush. Don't forget about that. Oh first. yeah, yeah, and Premium Rush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. is top notch <laughs> content. <laughs> so that's pretty fucking crazy stuff. I don't know. And what's also fucking nuts, by the way, is midway through recording this album, Get Born. 
the Rolling Stones hit Jet up and whisked them away from L.A. to their home country of Australia to support the Stones on their, uh, <laughs> their Aussie tour. This is just one example of what a crazy time this was for music. Oh, crazy times. <sighs> yeah, really. Say what you want about this time in music, this, the millennial era comeback of rock, the, the great bands like the White Stripes, Strokes, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, the Hives, and many others from the Black Lips to Hell. Even the fucking Killers. These bands were essentially their own bands in ways, you know, and I know the Killers get ragged on a lot, but they made a career off of referencing other acts. But listen, we're not going to get on that right now. Folks, nothing is 100% original. Bowie wasn't original. He stole, and he stole well. We stole. I, we, I know that. That's what great artists do, and, you know, we hope to be among them. And in effect, you know, when great artists do steal, it comes off less like theft and more like one new great artist just picking up the torch, the baton. They feel like they're keeping the relay race going and adding themselves to the conversation, and justifiably so. Great artists carefully craft themselves and their output. They know what elements to take from those who preceded them, and they know how to present what they've taken. Yeah, that's where the art part comes in. Absolutely. Now, the lesser bands, they don't fit this. These lesser bands have plenty of fans. Don't get me wrong, though I'd, I'd wager they have more stands than fans. A lot of media, especially these days, really thrives on the hardcore, on, on the niche, and that's wonderful. But these lesser bands are bands you look at and listen to and you get the sense that a little bit paint by numbers. You get the sense that they're great students, not great independent thinkers. You get the sense that these lesser bands are cosplaying, role-playing. You get the sense you know exactly who these lesser bands are trying to be and sound like. I'm talking about bands like Louis XIV, Franz Ferdinand, Stella Star, sadly, I liked them. The Mooney Suzuki, I liked them. Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, first three records I love. Wolf Mother, The Vines, and oh gosh, of course, Jet. That's, these are the bands I'm talking about. I really hate hearing the Mooney Suzuki. That You're going to hate the episode once we get there. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I do see where you're coming from. Listen, man, in a young man's mind is a little room for music and the, the rest is girls in a young man's mind. Uh, Actually, that, that's probably going to be the song we do. I think that's a great right. song. Yeah, so, those are shitty lyrics. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk. Let's talk about Jet. All right, let's talk about Jet. Let's play a game. Look at Jet. Listen to Jet. You will instantly think of the Rolling Stones, ACDC, Early Who, maybe the MC5. And of course, once they hit those ballads, you get you get a smack of the Beatles. Yeah, and at best remind you of some of the other bands that were around at that very same time trying to do the very same shit. Yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. That's so funny. Now, look at the white... This is back to the game. Now, look at the white stripes and tell me what band's closet they raided. Who on earth do they look like? What do they sound like? A punk band influenced by actual blues that was written and recorded by actual black people and not guitar store clerk, white boy, slow hands, SRV, note-pushing blues bullshit? I really don't know. It's crazy. I've been trying to think, <laughs> and I just don't know what that band is. I genuinely don't, besides I something... That was never popular. Exactly. And listen, there's a lot of influences the White Stripes pull from, but there are things that you really, you when you pick up on them, you're rewarded with them by like Easter eggs. They're not these glaring moments of like, oh my God, you're unoriginal and you stole. Anyway, let's look at the Hives and how they dealt with obvious comparisons. 
Pelle Almquist has often been asked if he's aware of how much he borrows from Mick Jagger. Almquist, being both a student and a new master of the game, would always reply by saying something like, I tried to model myself on James Brown. The joke being that Mick Jagger owes his gimmick and stage presence to James Brown. This gives the right answer, the aware and honest answer, while still subverting expectations and being punk and strident. It also tells you that Almquist is the next iteration after the likes of Brown and Jagger, not just because of the obvious and, and more dignified reasons, but because he, like Jagger, has stolen, and specifically from a black man. How about that? I really love Howlin' Pete. What an eloquent and interesting fellow. I could really watch Hive's interviews all day long. He's good. He's good. He's good. He's so good. Now, let's and also Howlin' Pete. Yeah. That's such a good nickname. Uh, Howlin' Pele. Yeah. So, no, I like Howlin' Pete. I was going to say that was fun. No, but the Howlin' is what I'm talking the about. The Howlin' is fantastic. Yeah, that's such a more James Brown than a Mick. Yeah, exactly. Really, yeah, 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 yeah. He gave his, I mean, you know, screaming Lord Sachi, which just sounds like, you know, screaming Jay Hawkins. He's really, he did something smart there. But uh, let's let's compare how Pele handled things. Let's compare that to how Nick Sester handled accusations that their hit single, Are You Going to Be My Girl, was a ripoff of Iggy Pop's Lust for Life. <laughs> Spoiler. Doesn't handle it well. Instead of controlling the conversation with a wink and a nod and in a provocative line that indicates a wry and arch awareness, Sester responds by showing himself, exposing himself by unfortunately sincerely. And I don't mean to make fun of somebody for being sincere, but oh man, sometimes you got to play some games, especially when you're in the media. But so he responds by saying, to be honest with you, that kind of annoyed me a lot because I always thought it was really lazy. People just go, well, Lust for Life is more well-known, so that's what they go for. But if you listen to a song like You Can't Hurry Love by the Supremes, I think you'll find it's closer to Are You Gonna Be My Girl than Lust for Life ever was. And that's what Iggy said as well. And you know what? Both Are You Gonna Be My Girl and Lust for Life have beginnings that are each identical to I'm Ready for Love by Martha and the Vandellas and You Can't Hurry Love by the Supremes. And so both of those Motown hits... Like, they also sound pretty similar, too. Now, I'm not going to speculate on what actually inspired Are You Gonna Be My Girl, but I do think Sester, clearly being aware of all the songs that share the similar beats and bass riff, I do think he could have been a little stronger with regarding, you know, how he dealt with the whole situation. He could have owned it, and he could have used it to place himself and his band within the conversation. That aside, listen, Jet's debut album, Get Born, it was released October 7th, 2003 in the U.S. The name of the album, <coughs> can have one of this, is a reference to Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues, a great song. Though you'd be forgiven for finding it bizarrely similar to the Vine song, Get Free. Something about Aussies and wanting to get. Don't know. Don't oh, know what that is. Was that another accent attempt with just get? Get. 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 Yeah, man, accents live in the vowels, man. I'm really communicating it with that, that very slit. Get! Get! Aussies, tell me how I'm Aussieing. Anyway, as discussed, Are You Gonna Be My Girl was the lead single for Get Born, and it kind of obliterated the world for a bit. It's hard to overstate how big this was. Zoomers may not know this, but Apple iPod commercials used to be a big deal. We fucking loved them. All these just featureless pitch black silhouettes just, you know, dancing in front of very bright single colors. Well, Jets, Are You Gonna Be My Girl was indeed the soundtrack to one of these commercials. This is 2003. 
Keep that in mind. TV was not only still relevant, it was the center of our pop culture consuming lives. I forgot about that. It was almost... It was almost like getting your song covered by Weird Al, getting your song in one of those commercials. <laughs> it was like a cultural moment. Yeah, it was a cultural moment. Not, it was some kind of badge. Definitely not as good of a badge as Probably Al paid badge. better than Al, Weird, Weird Al covering your fucking thing. But yeah. Probably. Yeah. Well, after Are You Gonna Be My Girl's dominance was well established, the band released their next single, Roll Over DJ. Hey. Roll Over DJ is another shining example of Jet's great weakness. Lyrics. The lyrical content of this song, like pretty much all Jet songs, is severely lacking. This song is a one-note teardown of DJs for being the dominant trend in nightlife. Little salty. The song's big affront to DJ culture at large is, you play other people's songs, mate. <laughs> Might want to be careful there, Jet. Cognitive dissonance. Hell of a drug, isn't it? Jet then released their next biggest single since Are You Gonna Be My Girl. I am sadly now referring to the painfully Beatles-esque ballad, Look What You've Done. The refrain is, look what you've done. You've made a fool of everyone. Everyone. <sighs> Man, that's bad. It's yeah, gonna, it's, it's a really bad one. Gonna get, it's going to get really bad once we break this down. 35 years earlier, in 1968, John Lennon sang, Sexy Sadie, What Have You Done? You made a fool of everyone. And if that's not enough to get angry about, folks, if you don't know, Sexy Sadie is a piano ballad, as is the song, Look What You've Done. Except, instead of being what it seems like it's about, Sexy Sadie is actually about the manipulative practices, faux spirituality, as if to say any spirituality is real, and sexual misconduct of the great grifter Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, with whom the Beatles famously stayed. Sexy Sadie is an example of great writing. In contrast, Jet's song, Look What You've Done, has a real sentimental and personal meaning to the band, which is, can be fine. It's apparently about their father cheating on their mother. And I'm not here to talk about that. But when you read the lyrics, this song could be about anything. Well, Jet, you know, you want to be broad sometimes so people can read their own meaning into it, but... Mm. Ooh, it's so lacking in specificity and meaning that anybody could really read whatever they want into it. Which, again, I'll say if purposefully done, that's genius. This song was a hit. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that wasn't purposefully done. I think Jet has, Jet has a penchant for writing one, maybe two verses, and then just recycling those same exact verses through a single song again and again. Yeah, this is something other pop rock songs have done. But it's like Jet took that note and just said, well, fuck it. All we got to do is write one unique verse, just repeat it, and we got a song, right? Well, shit fire. Yeah, it's really the best kept secret in music writing. Just do it twice. Yeah, you don't really got to... <laughs> yeah. Fuck it. Well, look what you've done, folks. Oh, man, look what you've done is an embarrassing song. The song is a sentimental, weightless, indistinct, unoriginal, and insincere stab at emotional gravitas. Whereas Sexy Sadie is a wry, devilish, sarcastic, and biting indictment of the manipulation of spiritual enlightenment industry with suggestively leading lyrics. Look what you've done as a po-faced, generic, fill-in-the-blank, horoscope style, so vague you can find any meaning in it, song. Now, you know what time it is. Kids, put your parents to bed. It's not a family show. Compare that next single to Cold Hard Bitch. This song is another shining example of how you should not come to Jet for their lyrics. Calling their verses verses is kind of insulting. 
With each Jet verse, you can tell they're just kind of treading water till you get to the next part of the song. So, hey, something I'll give them credit for. They can come up with enough ricks, riffs and, and licks to like cram into one song and, and, and with the start and stop gimmicks of their songs kind of actually sort of feel fleshed out, but they really aren't. Seems like they really jet through the songwriting process. Wow. I, yeah, I, I like that. I thought that was good. I thought that was really good. I thought that was well done. Jet. Yay. Jet. Collard Bitch is a song to listen Jet. to if you enjoyed the male gaze, premature ejaculation. I don't eat pussy because I can't. Bullshit of ACDC's bro rock anthem. You shook me all night long. Uh. Except with even worse lyrics. Like, I can't, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but You Shook Me All Night Long has, has better lyrics. Hell, the lyrics are profound compared to Cold Art Bitch. And again, don't get it twisted. I fucking hate ACDC. Me personally, not saying they're a bad band. I just think ACDC stocks in zero redeeming qualities, but I recognize it's unfair to call them bad. That's just me. That said, Bon Scott over Brian Johnson any day. And hey, if you're upset about all I just said about ACDC, Get your whiskey dick, Harley Davidson ass out of here and go let your girlfriend down in, in the bedroom and, you know, for whatever you do. Okay, just get out of my face. Anyway. Wow. That feels like that kind of came out of left field. Maybe now, a little bit. ACDC stuff. And that was a, you like that sports reference? <laughs> no, but yeah, I could see you getting tired of all the guitar solos. <laughs> oh, man. That's what it is. Yeah. Right. All the solos. Now, all throughout the rest of 2003, the band was on tour nonstop. This is something they'd regularly complain about in interviews. Come 2004, the boys in the band were still going hard nonstop, living on the road, living the on the road dream that so many rock stars love to complain about, as we just discussed. But again, you know, hey, check it out, rock stars. By the way, just before we move on, try being a fucking accountant or like working in marketing or bagging groceries for a living. Just try living a normal life without any of the dreams that came true for you happening. And then just tell me like how whack it is to be on the fucking road playing fucking rock and roll shows nonstop. You ungrateful, ungrateful fucks. Yeah, seriously, fuck them. I'll tell you what, if there's anything I can't stand, it's the few who live the dreams of the many and complain about it. Right. Yeah, I'm sure all the riches, the adulation, the ego, ego strokes, the crowd singing your songs back to you. I'm sure that's just all so dreadful. Us normal folks couldn't fucking possibly understand the sacrifice of the artist. So, this leads us to 2004's Aussie Invasion Tour of the U.S. This tour is Bad Band Great Song in one shot. We have the Vines, Jet, and the Living End. Oh my, this really was just the Bad Band Great Song show, the Aussie edition. So don't, don't worry, folks. We're going to get free and roll on one of these days. Just you wait. And this tour will be talked about more, by the way, once we get to the Vines, just to be clear. Man, you'd be more into the Vines if you were a bit more highly involved. Wow. Very good, Jerry. Very good. <laughs> the peak of Chet's career was also rife with other key TV spots. Besides the unrelentingly ubiquitous iPod ad, non-album track, Hold On, within the Spider-Man 2 film, and oh, my favorite, Cold Hard Bitch was used for the season four premiere of J.J. Abrams' Jennifer Gardner, Jennifer Garner vehicle, Alias. Ah, uh, yes, the ABC show. <laughs> yes. Alias. Yes. People loved that show. That show was huge back in the day. 
Chet also had a good year at the awards shows. They received a nomination for Favorite Artist Alternative Music at the 32nd Annual American Music Awards. They also won a Moon Man at the 2004 v- MTV VMAs for, for Best Rock Video. And they also performed Are You Gonna Be My Girl? And hey, they rock here, but fuck. <laughs> Man, I for the life of me cannot believe that Nick Sester actually likes to sing this song live because fuck that high note in the chorus. Those high notes! Listen, he sounds dope shredding his vocal cords there, but that's what he's doing. He's shredding his vocal cords. There's almost nothing but larynx obliterating tension and, and clenched muscularity in his voice here. He hits, he hits notes. He sounds rad, but he also sounds like he's killing himself and not in a sustainable way. I can't. Think of exactly the part you're referencing. Hmm. Well, let's listen to a bit of it now. just who mistake oh yeah you better believe it was jet played that night as part of a very weird medley featuring hoobas tank and yellow card weird anyway you think i'm gassing it about sester's voice two years later in 2006 nick sester would be diagnosed with vocal nodules oh yeah which is you know not that serious and it's treated pretty conservatively but the point is, you get vocal nodules from using your voice wrong and hurting the folds of, of your vocal folds. B- by the way, if you see people using vocal cords, vocal folds interchangeably, that's because apparently vocal folds is the modern way to refer to vocal cords. I, okay. learned, I learned that writing this episode, so I just want to impart that knowledge to everybody. Back to 2004. Jet also did pretty damn well at the Australian Record Industry. You got us that. <laughs> Australian Record Industry Association Music Awards, and we're not gonna go. We're not. We're not gonna go over all that because you know I, I fuck it. They won. They won. They did good. They did real nice. Just so know this, they won six out of the seven awards they were nominated for. How about that? Isn't that um. Yeah, very good for them. But this award show is also of note because Nick Sester played as part of a sort of. <sighs> Aussie supergroup, I guess, made up of members of Spiderbait, The Living End, Dallas Crane, and of course, of course, You Am I. This was their one and only performance. Like, they performed as Jet? Or did they perform <laughs> under, like, what? No, sorry, sorry, great question. Actually, 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 I'm so happy you asked her. I forgot to mention this. They performed as The Rights. That's uh, Rights, uh, W-R-I-G-H-T-S. So thank you for asking, Jerry. They performed as The Rights. The band was named for Stephen Wright, uh, frontman of the Easy Beats, which is actually a band I like. I really like the Easy Beats. Not the comedian. Not the comedian. <laughs> that would be awesome. I would love for that. Oh, man. Next up for Chet was their 2006 album, Shine On. The boys were now on Atlantic for U.S. releases, though that would change up again with their next record. Now listen here. Oh. 
Atlantic is a major. Oh! Not an indie. And we know that because if you knew that there was three majors and you didn't know with the majors on the indie, it's an indie without the majors. <laughs> there's three under the umbrellas, <laughs> indie on a major. <laughs> Very eloquently stated. And on October 3rd, 2006, Shine On was released in the States. And, oh man, I'm happy this is not the record we're actually focusing on because fuck, this one is bad, dude. This is, I mean, they're all, <laughs> they're all bad, but this is where the Beatles fetish really gets out of hand. And of course, of course, NME liked it. Allmusic.com was fucking cool with it too. And listen, they, oh my God. They have, they, have a, they have a track called Eleanor on here. And it fucking, it, sound, it's, it sounds like emo Beatles, bro. But why, I dude, I don't know. Why would you name a ballad Eleanor when you bite the Beatles so hard? If they were a different kind of band and a better band, I'd tell you this is just maybe a bit of a troll. But it's not. You see, every day is Halloween for Jet. And coming up soon is Halloween for Bad Band, Great Song. Funny Don't forget that. to Funny check out our Halloween episode coming Ooh. soon. I have been lately feeling like people are Spooky. watching me. Ooh. Yeah. I don't know. People think people have been watching me lately. Were. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 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 swerve coming, folks. Anyway, I listen, I'd be remiss to not mention this. You got to mention, you have, I would be remiss. You got to mention this. Pitchfork famously reviewed Shine On, this album, by rating it 0.0 and simply posting a video of a monkey pissing into its own mouth. The video is titled... Funny monkey peeing in his own mouth. Epic. Uh, <laughs> I totally forgot about that. How amazing. Yeah, I can't imagine how painful that was. <sighs> I, it, I've, we talked about this off, off air pre-production, but it's, it's a literal spinal tap, like shit sandwich review moment. But yeah. like IRL, it actually fucking happened. No, and people remember too. 2006 would prove to be the beginning of the end for Jet. A world tour was halted due to Nick Sester's aforementioned vocal fold issues. Shine On did okay abroad, but back here in America, sold roughly 137,000 copies, which is a huge difference from selling 1.7 million copies of Get Born. And this isn't me constructing a narrative. Jet would always do and will always do well in Australia. You cannot deny that. They'll do well in the UK. But their international appeal waned with each subsequent record. And there are only three. So Get Born, that's, that's their only multi-platinum record that they have back in Australia. Again, that's their home base, right? So not just constructing narrative here. This is plain to see. In March of 2007, the title track for Shine On was released. Shine On, the song, is a tribute to the Sester Brothers' late father, something that we did not touch on in this episode. Their father did sadly pass in about 2004. 2007 featured large one-off shows for Jet, like the Big Day Out Festival in Australia and New Zealand. They also had their Rip It Up Oz tour, and they had more placements in entertainment. They also opened for the Rolling Stones again. How about that? 
There's really no way Keith Richard actually is like into Jet. And he's like, yeah, we got to we got to take those boys out on tour again. There's no fucking way. <laughs> uh, you know what, man? I'm going to agree with you and I don't think them opening for the Stones really has anything to do with that. Yeah, I guess so. You know. We could go into that, but let's it's okay. We're ragging on them enough hard hard enough already. I'm just going to say I think hard. the Stones Oh, I don't know if I'm hard enough. Anyway, after some more high-profile shows, the band hunkered down to begin work on their third and ultimately final album. Oh boy, Shaka Rock. Say it again, Andrew. Shaka Rock. Shaka Rock. One more time. Shaka Rock is a strange album, perhaps because of how strange it actually really isn't. When you could tell this was meant to be the experimental Jet album. This album is so truly lame that the reviews for this album were frankly half-assed. Frankly, I'm not even sure many reviewers gave the whole album a spin. Rolling Stone quips, quote, they're back with another dull slog through the ACDC catalog. But that's that's just, that's not true with this album. This album is bad. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it's not bad for being a track-for-track ACDC rip, as Rolling Stone accuses them of. Another wonderfully strange detail about Shocker Rock. <laughs> Though it didn't even go gold in the U.S., it actually peaked only one spot lower than Get Born on the Billboard 200. So that's not too bad. And Get Born went platinum here in the U.S. In fact, that album did better on the charts in France, Switzerland, and New Zealand than Shine On did. Yeah, it's incredible because it doesn't have a single standout song. Right. It's not like it has a hit on it. That's Like how... That thank you. That's what I'm getting at, and I didn't phrase yeah. it. Like the album didn't seem to do that badly, but then it, it didn't have a song that was great. Right. It's very bizarre how it's very <laughs> bizarre. Oh man. Of note, in 2009, Jet opened for the Green Day during the Australian run of their 21st Century Breakdown World Tour. And that would kind of be the last big thing the band did. So I mean, this might seem like a dumb question, especially at this point in the podcast, but they were just Australia-based this whole time? Because they recorded in L.A. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, they, they had to be doing tours in the States. I wonder if they were living in the States or if they were just flying to Australia. So Chris like, Esther oh, had an it. L.A. home, right? Um, they all, which he sold after the band broke up, which is not something we're going to talk about. But you can find the Variety.com article talking about, like, Aussie drummer lists his L.A. mansion. Right. Oh, uh, right. this is so vicious, motherfuckers. Um, but no, th- I, I mean, their success really waned in the U.S., and they just played mostly in the U.K., some key Euro markets in Australia, they played uh, where they were most popular more and more with each right. with each subsequent album. And again, there were only three, so it's not like this lasted very long. And in fact, as we'll talk about, when they <laughs> they do come back, and don't call it don't call it a comeback because it actually really isn't a comeback. They keep things mostly to the Euro and the the Euro UK sphere. Okay, we're, okay. We're, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Speaking of getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Time. <laughs> Keeps on flipping. Flipping. Thank you, thank, thank you, thank you for thank you for bringing the the, the God, into the wise the words future. of the Steve Miller band into into this. Oh man, oh, oh, oh. what do I do when I write these scripts? Time, it moves on. <laughs> With or without you. With or without you. <laughs> it doesn't care if you're sleeping or dead. It won't wait and it won't stop. 
And so, wow, do you have a song for every fucking word I say? I'm trying. That's that's actually, if it weren't so impressive, it would be aggravating. So you could, if if you could keep it up, you could keep it going. But if you fail once, you're done. Like Frogger, you're done, you're done, you're done, you're done. You're done, you're dead. And so the band went on hiatus. Nick Sester and Cameron Muncie began exploring life outside of music. But Chris Sester and bassist Mark Wilson went on to form Damn Dogs, which I think sounds like Diamond Dogs a little bit. And they went on to release the EP Strange Behavior on August 9th, 2011. It's not very good at all. Uh, They do have a song called Cocaine, though. Sick. How about that? Yeah, isn't that fun? It's one hell of a drug. (laughs) Uh, And unfortunately, this song really isn't actually that fun. Cocaine has to be the worst track on the EP, and wouldn't you know it, it's the last track. Good note to leave us on, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That was fun. And on March 26, 2012, the band announced, we have really good sound effects in this show, the band announced via Facebook that they were breaking up. I'm really gaining a soft spot for all these band breakup announcements. They're so... They're incredible. It's incredible. I love that they're by email, by MySpace, or by Facebook. I love it all. They need to tell you. (laughs) They really Yeah. Well, it's like when people post like, Hey guys, I'm gonna be deactivating my Facebook account. Just right, wanna right, let you right. all know. You want that last fucking hit yes, of likes. Exactly. You wanna take that, one yeah, more hit exactly. of that fucking <laughs> social media. It's like it's like, all right, we're not going cold turkey. I'm gonna wean myself off, have one last <laughs> night. Bang a lang. <laughs> so Bang a gong. And let's, let's, let's see what this message to fans were. So, a message to our fans. I love how they frame everything. It's so good. After many successful years of writing, rec- <laughs> recording, see, and they're so good. <laughs> they're so good. It's so good. Writing, recording, and touring, we wish to announce our discontinuation as mm. a group. From the many pubs, theaters, stadiums, and festivals all across the world, it was the fans that made our amazing story possible, and we wish to thank them all. Thank you, and good night. It's such, they're all just these funny, humble brags. Yeah, I mean, they really are. There's like humble brags or like veiled digs into other band members, you know? They're so good. They're all so good. It's tremendous. Oh, man. At the time, manager Brad Freese? Freese? God damn. I did not put the name. I didn't put the name work into this show, but whatever, this episode. Brad Fries. Brad Fries added, quote, we will continue the Jet brand and their global footprint. During this time, the band would... Go off and live their lives. Nick Sester moved to Germany. He went to school. The other guys did things. And if you're asking why Jet broke up, the answer is simple. Regular ass band shit. They hated each other. Fights, disagreements, and all around hard feelings were the order of the day. This would be something the Sester brothers addressed in interviews. But these feelings would eventually subside because... The boss came a-calling. Bang-a-gonging. That's, that's, that's right. Jet opened for five dates for Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band's summer 2017 tour. And the love fest rolled on because Jet then came back for their first headlining show in six years at the 
Taronga Zoo in Sydney on February 16th, 2017, which, by the way, it's a real zoo. Like, it's a real fucking zoo with actual animals. Real. They just also do huge events there. How about that? Pretty wild, actually. That's really got to suck to be an animal at that zoo. <laughs> like, you're already stuck in a cage and then fucking jet is fucking playing. <laughs> oh, God. I'm so sorry, penguin homies. <laughs> or like whoever they didn't ask for this, zoo. man? They didn't fucking ask for that. Jesus, they just want to like chill out, like hear some Christopher Cross, hear a song about sailing. Anyway, in 2018, I don't know, I don't know why I think animals want to listen to like eight, like mid late 80s, like adult top 40, but whatever. But listen, in 2018, the reformed and reinvigorated jet set forth on their <laughs> Australian tour. We oh, talked; hey. they're really keeping things local. You know what I'm saying? In 2018, they went on their Aussie tour for the 15th anniversary of Get Born. They released a live album from this tour, and they also went on a smaller scale version in the UK, their other most important market. But that's not exactly where our story ends. No, 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 no. <laughs> we have one more quite strange thing to share. The Jaded Hearts Club. Jamie Davis, a musician whom you've never heard of. I nope. guarantee it. Yeah. <laughs> well, he turned 40, as humans do. And oh, four, good for I, him. Is that a, yeah. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Jamie Davis. I don't know how, are you, how old you are now, but you're at some age and you've had a birthday, so happy birthday. And for his 40th, 40th birthday, a goof band was assembled. They were a goof. And they had a pretty rad name, I think, actually. They're a goof or a gaff? They're, they're both. Their name, their original name, Dr. Pepper's Jaded Hearts Club Band. An obvious play on the Beatles because, I mean, this is just a meme at this point. The Beatles, whatever, rip them off. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, Dr. Yeah, if, if you love the soda. <laughs> yeah. If you love the soda, I got a band for you. Dr. Pepper's Jaded Hearts Club Band, for some reason, became a sort of, quote, real band simply going by the Jaded Hearts Club. The Jaded Hearts Club Band, the Jaded Hearts Club comprises... This this actually this group is this is a crazy group. The band is made up of Graham Coxon of fucking Blur, Miles Kane from The Last Shadow Puppets, Nick Sester from Jet, Sean Payne from The Zootons, yeah, this Whoa. Jamie Davis guy, and Matt Bellamy, the lead singer and guitarist from Muse. Mm. Yeah. What a not so super group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not even I'm not even I'm not even a Muse fan. I appreciate some of their stuff. Not a fan by any means. Matt Bellamy is the most impressive part of that group, by without question. They're all pretty talented. <laughs> well, well, they released a covers album called You've Always Been Here. It's not essential. As Jerry said in our last episode about something else entirely, it's worth avoiding. Yeah, as many things are. <laughs> That's Jet's story, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. Let's get into the critical reaction, commercial impact, chart success, and fan response. And here's where our story begins. <laughs> critical reaction. Tell me about it. Let's talk about it. Well, Get Born was released to generally positive reviews. Alternative press slobbed on its knob. Entertainment Weekly gave it the sort of glowing, fluff-filled, trite, meaningless review you would expect from Entertainment Weekly. And AllMusic.com, god damn it, they also gave it a good review. Village Voice was on board. Rolling Stone and Spitten were a bit more cautious and skeptical. Pitchfork... <laughs> 
<laughs> Pitchfork did what Pitchfork does. And this was 2003, folks. For those who don't know, early Pitchfork is, 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 is it's all a fucking meme. Every review is an edgelord concept piece. There are nearly no straightforward early Pitchfork reviews. They're often gimmicky, but at best, a meta representation of the experience you'll have listening to the album. If that sounds like a best-case scenario that rarely happens... It, it is a best-case scenario. That rarely happens. There's a reason Pitchfork doesn't do their reviews like this anymore and haven't for a long time. That aside, they did rate this album, and they rated it a 3.7 out of 10. Yeah, well, I fucking give Pitchfork a 3.7 out of 10. How about that? <laughs> How about that? I agree with you, man. Fuck, fuck the fork. Commercial impact. I wouldn't fuck a fork. Uh, no, that would actually hurt. That would actually hurt. So I, I dated a guy once for a little bit. I'm not going to name him. He was really into sounding. Do you know what sounding is? Probably Please sh- stop. We should Please not go into this on the show. The- Folks, look it up on your own time and share it with don't your- Don't sh- look it up. We didn't send you there. Talk about it with your family over dinner one time. Sounding. Sounding. It's a thing that men like to Please do with each other. no, not- commercial impact well perhaps no surprise are you going to be my girl is jet's biggest song it went gold in australia selling at least 35,000 copies it went gold in the u.s selling at least 500,000 copies and platinum in the uk selling at least 600,000 copies the album get born went platinum in the u.s selling 1.7 million copies it went platinum in canada selling at least 100,000 copies and it also went platinum in the uk selling at least 300,000 copies and it went eight times platinum in Australia, selling at least 560,000 copies. Plat- platinum is 70,000 copies in Australia. Copies, copies, chart, chart, copies. But, but you know, but, 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 but Diamond in Australia now is 500,000 copies. And Get Born has sold more than that. So I think Get Born is cert- should be certified diamond. Is that not right, Jeremy Cohen? Oh my God! Should we do? Should we do this right now? I think we're doing it. Let's officially make it official on our show. We would like to formally present Jet with the Australian Diamond Play button for their debut album Get Born. They've done it. Congratulations, Jet! You've reached. Diamond. I am going to put in a totally appropriate sound effect for such a prestigious award to play now. <laughs> Is it like a gling? It's it's yeah, it'll be so gling. Don't you don't you worry? Gling. About it. Chart success. Well, <laughs> uh, it, it, it did it did well overseas. It did a lot of things overseas. Did it chart? It charted, and you all can read about that Tell me about on your own time. It. We're going to talk about the United States charting, though. So, Are You Going to Be My Girl peaked at number three on Alternative Airplay chart, the number five spot on the adult alternative songs. Oh, boy. Number seven on the mainstream rock chart. It chart. peaked at number 16 chart. on the adult top 40 chart. and U.S. mainstream top 40 charts. Chart. Number 22 on the top 40 tracks chart. chart. Oh, and it peaked at 29 Chart. on the Billboard Hot 100. Chart. Oh, man. I, I hope you folks at home have as much fun with that and love that as much as we do. And hate it. It's a love-hate Oh, thing. I don't think we hate it. It's just, that's just part of the fun. Sometimes love hurts. Anyway, fan response. I mean, 
I don't know. How many people know Jet Song other than this one? It's their most played song on the Spotify by a long shot. Uh, it currently has 358,810,702 streams. The video has 124,186,936 views. And Jet's channel, by the way, has 167,000 subs. Think about that. Have fun with that. They're a small content creator. They're not even big in the, you know what I mean? 167,000 subs. Couldn't even get a sponsor. No, I'm kidding. There's a lot of people with, I'm being mean. I'm sorry, folks. Don't do that. I I do not mean to slander our fellow small content creators. Yeah, we're all in this together. I'm really small too. I'm like 5'5". That's cute. Guys like it. Anyway, segment three. What makes the band bad? This is a, well, this is going to be a simple one. I got three main points. Jets on original. (laughs) One, two, all they can write are riffs. Three, their lyrics are just placeholders. Now, these points are very related. I won't pretend they're not. So I'll be sure to call out when we transition from one point to the next. Thank you. You seem very welcome, baby. Jet just, so let's talk about it. Let's talk about them being unoriginal. Okay. Okay, let's talk about it. Jet just straight up isn't a band that needs to exist. <laughs> they were our gen- generation, Jerry, the millennial generation. They were our generation's Greta Van Fleet, a band that some old heads will like because, I don't know, I be, they'll, because they'll be like, well, at least some bands rock and they're not doing that. That's music with the beats kind of stuff, you know. That's some old heads will like it. We'll go oh, at least some real rock. Wow, you know, huh? Huh? They're in the comments. I've seen them. Oh man, and you know, they're a band that other members of their generation will like because you know, just they're having fun, right? And they're making good music, and we should just let them have their fun, right? No, no, no. Fuck that. Let's make some progress here together, everybody. Come on. I agree. So that's a dangerous mentality. Yeah. Just they're having fun. Let them play whatever music and be, be total ripoffs. Let them have their fun, right? That's a dangerous mentality. That mentality works for your first band. I mean, not even. I agree. But maybe like a high school band. Uh, uh, this mentality works for a bar band that's never going to quite make it and okay, is there yeah. for a fun night. A fun. You know? For, for a fun night. Exactly. They're fun. But All this right. mentality hurts art. I think it cheapens the validity of being an artist. Yeah, and also have some fucking forethought. No one wants <laughs> to see that shit all over again. <laughs> yeah, that's essentially what I'm going to say in a much longer, more college boy douchebag format right now. <laughs> Whoops, <laughs> no, I do that to you sometimes, and I feel bad. No, you're an you're you're <laughs> an Andrew translator, and it's good. I like it. It's fun. Anyway, we've discussed this already in season one. Originality isn't that important if you're making a video game, a card game. Hell, I don't know. Originally doesn't matter if you're making a Marvel movie. If something is fun, it's fun. Who cares how original it is? Art is a little different, though. Even though it's still a commodity and essentially a consumer product, if a new artist doesn't offer us art that is new, it's new in some way and adds to the conversation, then what, 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 is, what is its point? Why 
is it here? We're having a conversation. Imagine if this conversation didn't move forward. Imagine if I just repeated myself again and again, slightly rephrasing things, but saying the same stuff. Imagine if Jerry and I just completely plagiarized this whole script. None of that is okay, and none of that would be worth your while. Yeah, imagine if Andrew and I just completely plagiarized this whole script. <laughs> none of that is okay. <laughs> and none of it would be worth your while. <laughs> See, like, just because I said it in my sexy voice instead of Andrew's sexy voice <laughs> doesn't make it any different. Uh-huh, it was yeah, the yeah. same few sentences over and over again. I even got bored saying it. I kind of like your cover of it, though. Your cover of those sentences, I yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a good cover. cover. Yeah. Because you reconfigure. Well, that's like, we'll talk about covers another time, folks. That's a fun time. Jet is a band that is role-playing and cosplaying. Because, you know, if you're going to do a cover, you got to bring something new to it. Anyway, we're not going to get into this now. Jet is a band that is role-playing and cosplaying as other bands. You see them, and they look like a reconfigured and stylized version of vintage bands. The drummer guy wears that, like, ship captain hat or whatever in the video, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> yes, he does. Oh man, yeah, he does. And in ways, maybe because of the ship cap, the captain hat, Jet is kind of a great Zoomer band. I'm going to say that. They would be a great Zoomer band. They really would have been. They are Greta Van Fleet. You know what I'm saying? They're a band that came up in an era when telecommunications was robust enough that they could do all the research in the world and they could just like nail a look and like sound in ways that just, just couldn't really happen in the past because you can't just download all the music and listen to it and you know what I mean (laughs) like be so exposed to so many reference points that already exist that you could so easily curate and construct what you want to do I would put my money that someone in Greta Van Fleet wears one of those ship captain hats too I (laughs) you're probably (laughs) fucking right man you're probably fucking right well anyway folks if 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 you, you disagree with me just go on Instagram and TikTok there are countless posts providing tutorials on how to nail a look. So you can look like an idealized, steezier version of the past that never actually existed outside of photo shoots featuring celebrities in the most most likely coastal cities. Jet would have fit right into this. In fact, talk about nailing a look, nailing a sound, doing the whole thing. In their iTunes, now Apple Music description, it said perfectly... They're, quote, jeans and jacket rock and roll. No way. Mm-hmm. It really says that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like someone in the jet camp or like the publishing company just let that happen? That's incredible. Jeans and jacket rock and roll, mate. Okay. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? But it's not just how they look. Their sounds are taken straight from ACDC, the Beatles, Aerosmith, and even fucking Pink Floyd. It's astounding. Which leads me to this. All they write are riffs. Really. All their success and appeal is predicated on a riff. They structure their music to carry the song because they have no message ever. They just have riffs. They have have riffs. They can sort of write choruses that are big and rock. So... I guess it's important to get to those choruses and keep shit as simple as possible with concise, hooky riffs and verses that don't really ask too much of you, right? And that's what they do. And that feeds into the final point. Their lyrics are mostly meaningless placeholders. Just sounds to get you to the chorus where, (laughs) big surprise, much of nothing will be said. 
as we discussed, most Jet songs have one verse, one and a half to two at most, and they get recycled. Here are the only two verses in the song. It's not a joke. This is, this is the, these are the two verses. Oh my God, he counts. This, this, this is too funny. This is too funny. I didn't realize how funny this is. Okay, this is the first verse. So one, two, three, take my hand and come with me because you look so fine that I really want to make you mine. I say, you look so fine that I really want to make you mine. Verse two. Oh. Four, five, six. Come on and get your kicks. Now, you don't need the money when you look like that, do you, honey? That's it. That's all there is. That's it. Those are the, those, that, those are the verses. And he counts. So it's so cute. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. Oh, do you want to know the rest of the lyrics? Because this actually, oh boy, am I gonna, I'm going to have some fun with this one. Yeah, let's get through. Big black boots, mm-hmm. long brown hair. She's so sweet with her get back stare. Well, that is the line. He says yes, it all right you. there. Thank you. Her get back stare. She wants you to fucking step back, bro. Dude, get it's a insane. clue. It's, it's her insane. get back stare. She's looking at you like get back. He wrote this. And he's like, I, I don't got shit to say to you, but we you got to take you home. He wrote this. I have to imagine in his mind he thought that sounded like he's saying like she has like a, a stare that says, oh, get back here. I think that's what he must have meant. But Nick Sester, uh, get back stare. <laughs> I didn't did no, even think of no, reading it, it like does, that. Because it, no, because it. Because get back stare sounds like, hey, get back. Get back. Get back. And get I, back stare. I just got to say, amidst all this, like, very cis hat, like, male gaze, like, lusting after the woman bullshit, I really love that Nick Sester has the time to talk about what the girl's wearing. I love that attention to detail that Nick Sester right, calls right. out the big black boots, long brown hair. Oh, mm. I love Nick. I love Nick's attention to just detail and just the, his just his his appreciation for clothing. Oh, Nicky boy, oh, it's so fun. But yeah, get back stare. Like holy shit, man, he wrote this. Oh well, let's. This you want to know the chorus? Let's talk about the chorus. Let's talk about the chorus. This is the chorus. Well, I could see you home with me, but you were with another man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know we ain't got much to say before I let you get away. Yeah. Yeah. I said, are you going to be my girl? <laughs> In his head, this must have been cool. In performance, it seems cool. I think. I've, I've watched performances. It kind of seemed cool. It almost seems to have a disaffected Godard-esque on we, which comes from being so filled with thought that the only the most surface level and flippant of statements comes out. It almost seems like that, you know, belying the true iceberg of implicit statements beneath the surface. Except this isn't that. <laughs> this isn't that at all. This is just a guy coveting another person's romantic partner, admitting that they have grown of much, they, they have nothing to talk about. So he hits her with, ah, I said, I said, yeah, I said, I said, uh, are you gonna be my girl? This is some fucking milady shit. This is some I have studied the blade type shit. This is not cool, folks. And when you ponder this, it undoes the pretenses of the entire song. Wait, wait, don't forget the drummer has that cool captain hat, though. 
that does count for something. But let's look at the, as we like to, let's look at the reality of this song. Like we talked about with P.O.D.'s Alive. Talk about Sonny Sandoval actually being on his knees screaming, I feel so alive. Let's look at the actual reality of this song. This is a guy at a bar who sees someone else's romantic partner and thinks to himself, damn, she's hot. I'm going to say something cool to her and and I'm going to get her. And in coveting another person's partner, like the fucking sniveling twat he is, all he can offer up is, I said, are you going to be my girl? It's like, hey, I said to the bro, it's like, <laughs> it's exactly are you like going to be my girl? Yeah. It's hey, exactly- <laughs> so like. <laughs> oh, man. Listen, here we are. This is. We're finally at the point where we're gonna I'm gonna address this. There's there's no question mark in the title of this song. The song title, which is a question, mind you, Are You Gonna Be My Girl, is written not as a question, but as a statement. Are you going to be my girl? Period. This is a choice, folks. Song titles can have punctuation. They can have any characters at all. Hell, the fucking symbol Prince used to go by that was pronounced as the artist, or more famously, the artist formerly known as Prince. That fucking symbol was printed. Song titles can have punctuation, okay? Yeah, I remember a song on a record from forever ago that just was dashes and dots, and it was supposed to be Morse code. Whoa. And and I can't remember the band, and (laughs) no, I can't remember what the Morse code spelled out. (laughs) And I have no idea how to search it because it was Morse code, but (laughs) you could name a song anything. There you go, exactly. So this song title doesn't have fucking punctuation. And Nick Sester believes when he asked, are you going to be my girl? He believes he said it. He didn't ask. He said, Nicholas, you asked. You asked a question. You didn't say anything. You asked a question. You asked another person's partner, are you going to be my girl? You didn't say anything. Folks, this is, this is stupid. This is genuinely stupid. Now, I, I get the defense. I said sounds cooler than I asked. I get it. But we still have a stupid problem. Oh, Fennell, you're really just being crazy now. This isn't that big of a deal. You're absolutely right. It's not. But I'm having some... We're having some fun here. And also making a point. There's no good thought in this band. They thought you could say a question. They thought this scenario was cool. The story of the song is not cool. It's buffoonery. It's frankly lascivious. The song is not cool. Imagine this reality, folks, because this is the story of the song. I'm going to say it again. Nick Sester is at a bar. He sees a girl with another guy, her boyfriend. Sester and this woman have no interactions. He's just been eye-fucking her all night. And upon her and her man leaving the bar, Sester somehow mutters something. Perhaps she turns around and says, what did you say to me? And he replies, I said, are you going to be my girl? Keep in mind, Sester acknowledges in the song that they have nothing to talk about with one another. In case you forgot, he says, oh, I could see you home with me, but you were with another man. I know we ain't got much to say. And that's the fucking ain't much that they got to say. Are you going to be my girl? Imagine that happening in real life and understand how absolutely offensive, strange, and unsettling that would be. Jet is dumb. They think this is cool. They think they are telling you a question and they think this is cool. Now, if this was meant to be the story of the song, then Jet's an interesting band. Let's look at James Blunt's You're Beautiful. (laughs) That song has an infamous lyric which totally changes the meaning of the song and it's been cut from the single version. Here it is. 
Yes, she caught my eye as she walked on by. She could see from my face that I was fucking high, and I don't think that I'll see her again. But we shared a moment that will last till the end. This is brilliant. James fucking Blunt is brilliant, folks. Everyone thought this was a beautiful love song. And maybe it kind of is. But it's actually an inversion of that. It's a subversion of that. This is a self-aware, brilliant writer creating a first-person narrative of a meek dude, a loser, okay, who had a stoned fucking loser. Who I, I, and I love the pot, folks, but this is a stoned fucking loser who had an imagined moment with a girl, all because he's high and, and saw her on the train. She was on the train with her man, saw James Blunt's character. I actually don't know if that's part of the song. She might not have a man at all. I shouldn't imply that. I, I don't fucking know that. But she was on the train. James Blunt saw her smile, and she smiled at him. And then Blunt's character, being a high buffoon, took this to mean something a little more than it was. Anyway, anyway, feel free to go over any one of their songs, folks, and you'll see, you'll hear that all the meaning you've imbued Jet songs with are just that, songs you have imbued with meaning. Believe me, Jet songs do not have the meaning you think they have. There is nothing to be found in their words. It's almost impressive how little they say. Really is. And... Speaking of that, let's get into our technical analysis. Let's talk about what makes this song great. Let's talk about it. So what makes this song great? Oh, man. Then I might be only, we might be only saying a little here. <laughs> let's do a little technical analysis. So the song, sta- the song starts with the sound. Stats. Stats. Yeah, I did get a little paisan without even trying to. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens. The song starts with the sound of the room. And I actually think that's really cool. It's a masterful choice. The song instantly has an atmosphere and a vibe that the other songs it borrowed from didn't quite have. It begins with the sound of the room, an already decaying cymbal and a classic hip-shaking tambourine. It's very cool. It's all very cool. And then we hear Nick Sester clear his throat. It's loose. It sounds live, and it instantly gives you a vibe. It's very cool stuff, man. This song succeeds technically because of the riff, the music. That's all there is here. And this is the best Jets ever been and ever will be. This is, this is the pinnacle of their powers. The song is designed to sound and feel like a party from start to finish. And that unrelenting nature comes from the song's simplicity and and how rooted it is to the riff. The song is also three minutes and 33 seconds long, the perfect length for the perfect pop song. Three minutes to three and a half minutes is the golden range for pop songs. This is three minutes and 33 seconds long. Three, three, three. I'm not going to get all magical and start expounding on that, but let us not underestimate the power of things that we do not understand. Now, let's not actually attribute anything magical to this just because we may not understand something doesn't mean something magical is happening. Definitely not. I mean, in fact, there's never anything religious, spiritual, or magical happening ever. It's just life, you know? But this huge song that is so calculated from a band that named itself Jet, not just because of the McCartney reference, but also because of how easy it is to say, the song is three minutes and 33 seconds long. Hmm. Three, three, three. I don't think I have to read into that for you, folks. Smoke a smoke a joint and have have fun, folks. Are you saying they made some sort of deal with the devil here? Is this a six 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 thing? I'm not getting it. Can can you pass the joint? <laughs> Definitely, 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 definitely lizard people. That's that's all it comes down to. 
But anyway, beyond that, it takes proven elements. The song takes proven, not the lizard people. The songs take proven elements and use them in effective ways. Whether it's I'm Ready for Love by Martha and the Vandellas, You Can't Hurry Love by the Supremes, or Lust for Life by Iggy Pop, Jet took a beat and a bass riff that is a proven entity. They essentially sampled something they already knew slapped. Something that had for generations now gotten people up and dancing. Yeah, fucking more Greta Van Fleet. I get it. It's passable. It succeeded. They're making good music. Let them have their fun. Don't you shouldn't tell people what to listen to. Let people enjoy things. We are. We're just having a conversation. You fucking mook. Relax. God, I hate people who don't exist and I just make up and give them like arguments that I don't like. You know. Yeah, I mean you're. It's They're so pre- difficult. It's preemptive. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes. I don't have a segue. Let's <laughs> get into the personal analysis for the song. Let's get into it. I want to hear what you think, feel about this. So, I don't like this song very much at all, but I quite enjoy it. And somebody who can't reconcile those things, you're fucking dumb. I'm sorry, but you are. Don't be so binary. That's like uh, you, when we went to the Alexander Orange Drink show, Jerry. I met mm. this dumb human who I will not identify in any way. But just, I can't remember who it is. You may not have been there for that very that exchange. I'll explain it to you off the air. But this person, when heard, they heard about our show, looks at me and says, how could a bad man have a great song? If they have a great song, they can't be bad. I kid you not, this happened. So this person is stupid. This person was a chuggy as hell, spoodify Netflix, Amazon Prime, Apple Teeny, Live, Laugh, Love, Hallmark Channel, Normie. Listen. It's clear advanced thought is beyond them. Don't be that way, folks. Don't be that way. So I don't really like the song, but I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I get it. The song's appeal is purely in the sound. At least that's what I say. They did something incredible here. The song is a... It's a Marvel movie. It's a popcorn flick. You sit back, you don't think about it, and you can rock to it. And I'm going to say, with this song, they created something that sounds perfect. If you don't scrutinize it, it takes you away and on its journey. And again... It rocks, but I don't think it's very good at all upon scrutiny. But that doesn't prevent it from being a great song. (laughs) I mean, because again, folks, there is no one set of criteria that we use to judge a great song. And I don't know, even though I don't like this song, it fucking, it gets me going. And it's huge. So personally, emotionally, I can get why it's great. So... I know that that's not exactly what people maybe want to hear. Like, hey, you know, I, I don't like it, but it's still great. But that's where we're at, you know? I'm pretty even killed on this song, even though I kind of fucking hate it. I still get its appeal and I enjoy it, you know? Uh, in fact, I'm going to say that this song's greatness comes from how much it achieves, despite it not being a very good song at all. Uh, and again, if that breaks your brain, folks... I don't know. Do more drugs. Start microdosing. I don't know what to tell you. Free yourself from binary thought. That's all I got to say. Do you, do you, Jeremy, do you have, do you have a personal, you have personal feelings on this song? Yeah. I mean, I guess the personal feeling is like, it's incredible how it just succeeded. It's it becoming one of those songs that will undoubtedly be on a classic rock station in 20 years. I'm sure it already is. Yeah, they just, I mean, yeah, we're 17 years away. It's 15 years. It's almost 20, 19 years. <laughs> I'm not going to identify you, buddy, but I'm 34 years old. Time has moved. Things have gone by. Yeah, look at that. Well, mm-hmm. if that was their goal to create another 
song that just kind of is like another notch in the belt of like what rock and roll may still be they fucking achieved that with one song yeah for sure and good yes. and good for them for that and yeah I would, we don't need any more of them for sure but <laughs> no we don't we got that let's call it a day and on that note excellent very good duh alone things doesn't work out in our show because they never they never do in life how about that? We're getting really scary here. Halloween time, baby. Anyway, folks, with that said, with everything Jerry said, I think it's time now to bid you all, the folks at home, a good night and a farewell. So, folks, as always, thank you for your time. Stay strange. Be kind. And love yourselves. And farewell. <laughs> See you now, folks. <laughs>